Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 652 with Brian Levinson. I don't know if you have noticed this, but it seems like a lot of advice out there can potentially be contradictory. Even on this very podcast, you get 652 voices. Well, some of them might sound like they're at times saying, in fact, the opposite thing. How do you make sense of that? Well, Brian has got a fantastic model here, which helps really zoom in on the distinctions between, hey, am I in a preparation mode or am I in a performance mode? And then what are some of the best ways to be that are really suitable and appropriate and helpful if you're rocking and rolling in the prep phase or it's go time in the performance phase. You'll learn one, how to get into the elite performer mindsets. Two, when it pays off to be arrogant And three, the visualization hack used by elite athletes. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to albums we've referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP652. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out one of our coolest resources, which is the Gold Nugget email list. You can get summary insights from every guest on the day the episode goes live, as well as access to the archive of all of the guests who showed up before that day. That's called the gold nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here is Brian's story. Brian Levinson is the founder of Strong Skills, which provides executive coaching and mental performance coaching, speaking and consulting to elite organizations, performers, and leaders. He has been fortunate to work with CEOs, professional athletes, and with teams in the NBA, NHL, and MLS, Division I athletic programs, the Federal Reserve, the Department of Homeland Security, and many others. Brian has a weekly podcast called Intentional Performers, where he interviews a diverse group of elite high performers. Brian has a weekly newsletter called Brian's Message of the Week, which shares articles, videos, podcasts, and information to subscribers. Brian also created an assessment tool called the Self-Belief Inventory, which is used by elite athletes, executives, and organizations. His book, Shift Your Mind, was released in October of 2020. Brian currently lives in Bethesda, Maryland with his wife and two kids. So huge thanks to Brian for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Brian. Brian, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. Excited to chat with you today. Well, I'm excited too. And so we're going to be talking about your book, Shift Your Mind, Nine Mental Shifts to Thrive in Preparation and Performance. And so 
I think that you've, just, you've got such a great idea that you've captured here. Maybe why don't we kick it off by hearing a little bit about the the behind the scenes research in terms of, is there a particularly surprising or, or fascinating discovery you made while researching this stuff? For sure. So I work as a mental performance coach and an executive coach, but most of my career before what I'm doing today has been with athletes and and working with athletes. So I really cut my teeth in coaching people with mental performance for athletes. And as I started to work with these athletes, some were golfers, some were basketball players, baseball, you name it, I would notice that their mindset for preparation was very different than their mindset for performance. And there were many times where they were bringing their mindset for preparation into their mindset for performance. So we just started putting a line down a piece of paper and saying, hey, what do you need in preparation and what do you need in performance? And what we started to realize was that they were very different mindsets and often they were actually opposites. So the preparation mind and the performance mind, they weren't just different. They were often like very, very polar and sort of had polarity in them. And then as I started to study more and more elite performers and I'd watch documentaries and I'd study the great performers in music or in comedy or in sports, I would notice this trend that many of them, not even consciously, but they would actually set their mind for preparation and set their mind for performance. And then I did a deep, deep dive and took about four years to write the book formally, but spent much more time thinking about this framework and, and using it with my clients as well. So that's sort of the background of the book. All right. So that's a cool big idea there. So so the preparation mindset is different than the performance mindset. And, and we've got some nine particular distinctions we're going to dig into shortly. But when you said you noticed some of your clients, they were in performance, but some of the preparation stuff was getting in there. I mean, is that a bad thing? Is it... How do we think about that? Is it is it fine or do we want there to be a, a real crisp line between them and, and what difference does that make? I think what I started to notice, even with the pro athletes that I worked with, that many of them would bring their preparation mind into their performance and it would get in the way. So for example, perfectionism, it would really help them drill down on what they needed to do, how they needed to do it as they were training their body or they were training their technique or they were training their mind. Yet when they got between the lines and they needed to execute and compete, they actually needed to be adaptable. So we've seen performers and for your audience, I'm sure a lot of them have been in meetings or have been in sales calls and what they need to do to prepare for that meeting, it might be perfectionistic, but then when they get in that meeting, it might be completely different than how they imagined or how they planned and they have to be adaptable. And if they try to perfect it, it will really get in the way of their performance. And if we just go from a macro level and zoom out a little bit, we're recording this in the middle of a pandemic. Like there's no perfecting a pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, some people might try to perfect it, but you have to be agile. You have to be adaptable. So really the ethos and the, the thesis behind the book is that what we think and when dictates how far we're going to go and what we're capable of when it's time to deliver. And a lot of times we just tell people to be humble or be selfless, and we don't really think about the when. And so I saw with my clients in sports, and then, as I said, I do a lot of executive coaching now, my clients in business, whether they're directors or VPs or at the C-suite level, they often need to shift their mind in preparation and performance. Okay. So you're saying, hey, you know, be be humble, be selfless. You're saying, well, no, there's there's a time you want to be humble and there's a time you want to be just the opposite of humble. And there's a time you want to be selfless and then there's a time you want to be just the opposite of selfless. Yeah. And match it up right is what you're saying. Pete, have you ever taken the Myers-Briggs or any of those personality assessments, right? Oh, yeah. And like on one hand, I love them. And on the other hand, I hate them. 
And it's a love-hate relationship because I love data and, and learning more about myself and that part I love, but I hate being put into this box and I read it and I'm like, well, sometimes I'm like that and sometimes I'm not. Like, let's take introversion and extroversion, for example. I'm like, well, sometimes I'm very extroverted and, and sometimes I'm very introverted. And I don't go into introvert and extrovert in the book, but I just really believe in the power of polarity. And I think when is so important when you're talking about performance and how you're going to prepare and when you need to bring out a part of you that might be more humble and when do you need to bring out a part of you that might be more arrogant. And I think that when really dictates how far we're going to go. <laughs> As you speak, I think about times I've been particularly humble and particularly arrogant. And I, I hope I matched it up appropriately. Because <laughs> yeah, if you don't, it's a disaster, right? Yeah. It, it's a disaster. If you're arrogant, at the wrong time, first of all, you seem like a jerk. And then second of all, like that's probably a time where you needed to learn and grow and develop. And I think about young people, for example, I know a lot of your listeners might be in their thirties. I'm in my thirties. I felt throughout my career that I'm often the youngest person in the room. This morning I was on a board call for a nonprofit and I was like the youngest person in the room. And I think sometimes when we're the youngest person in the room, we feel like we have to overshare, add value, like bring something bigger to the room to compensate perhaps for our inexperience, or perhaps we feel like an imposter. And I found it's actually the exact opposite. Like we need to be aware of what room we're in, how we can add value to that room while also understanding there's a time to learn and grow and, and develop. And then there's another time to share with conviction and figuring out when you do those is essential. Look, I have a podcast. My job as a podcast host is to ask questions and be very curious and, and learn, learn, learn. And then when I put on this hat and you're asking me questions, I need to share and I need to be willing to share everything that I've learned. Yeah. And you've nailed that. And I've noticed that when I've been a guest on other podcasts, I just sort of didn't make the same shift because it's like, hey, I'm comfy. I'm in the I'm behind the mic. And so I'm just sort of curious, like, hmm, I don't know. Well, you know, I think I would say, and it's like, that's not what people want when you're the guest. It's like, no, I'd actually like for you to be confident and have the answers that you've thought through and, and established your best thinking on as opposed to just kind of, oh, I'm just thinking it out. I mean, some shows you might want to do that. But I noticed that was a, a pause I had is that, oh, I would say it was like, no, Pete, you're at, you've actually thought about this for many hours and you're not just making it up on the spot. You don't want to convey that as a guest. So, hey, I guess it's humble and arrogant right there. Yeah, Pete, let's use curiosity because I know you are a very curious person. You've done hundreds of these episodes, a lot of episodes. You don't get to, what are you at, like 800? How many episodes have you done? Oh, 650-ish. 650, yeah. right? Like you don't record that many episodes without curiosity. It's all, you're trying to learn, you're trying to grow, trying to develop. And there's a time to have conviction, right? There's a time yeah. to share your ideas and whatever you've learned along your way. And actually I think about humble and arrogant because we're often told just to be humble. And we've all been around that guy or gal who is just trying to be modest and they're saying, oh, I'm just humble. And I'm just saying, you're like, you're actually really not, but you say you are. And, and actually what we read, what we need right now from our leader is not someone who's going to be humble right now. We need you to give us direction right now. We need you to give us some answers and some solutions. There's actually an interesting study that was in the Harvard business review that talked about when being a humble leader backfires and it can backfire. And I'm not saying I don't want people to be humble. Trust me. I love humility as a value and as a trait, but I just don't think you need it all the time. And so understanding when we tap into these different sides of ourselves is really key. Well, actually, I have not read that article. When does being a humble leader backfire? When people are looking for answers. 
They want answers. You're like, well, hey, you know what? We're going to explore. We're going to engage. We're going to listen. We're going to do our research. We're going to see where the science leads. Like, give me the answers. (laughs) For sure. When there are times when, when team members are expecting leaders to be powerful and expecting them to say, you know what? Let's go forth. Let's do this. Let's maybe be a little fearless. And in those moments, if you're being fearful or you're being humble or you're being too careful or you're being too cautious or you're asking too many questions to the room, there does come a time where leadership requires us to step into something and take a risk. And if you're just going to be humble and look for a meritocracy or, or look for everybody to have a say, you might actually not be leading. And so I think there are yeah. absolutely times where leaders need to step away from humility. And trust me, there are plenty of times where they need to step away from arrogance. I've worked for arrogant bosses before, and that's not a fun experience either. So the book is really about the power of and, the power of when, the power of polarity. And beyond the book, I use this just as like a framework for how I operate with with most of the world. Okay. Well, Well, so lay it on us. So we talked about humble versus arrogant. So we got nine shifts or continua or polarities. Tell us, how should I be thinking about these on in terms of like an axis or a continuum or a polarity or a shift? And, and what are the nine specific shifts? So I think there are nine shifts and I don't think they are the nine. And when we were thinking about the book cover and the title, I pushed back on the publisher. I was like, I don't want there to be the nine. So we settled on nine. I sort of met them halfway. And the reason for that is I don't believe that these are nine shifts that everybody should use. They might have different jobs and and different requirements. And these are the nine that were the most compelling, that were the most backed by research and backed by anecdotal evidence, and that I saw also with my clients. So we have humble and arrogant. We have work and play. We have analysis and instinct, perfectionistic and adaptable, experimenting and trusting process, uncomfortable and comfortable, future and present, fear and fearless, and selfish and selfless. But there are many other shifts that we cut out of the book. I'm just big on truth-telling, and these are the nine that we, we settled on that would be most impactful for the reader. But I hope that people finish reading the book and think, wow, there's actually a different shift that I need to make that's actually not listed in the book, that to me would be a sign of success. Yeah. And so with those nine pairs, the the first word is generally associated with the vibe we're going for within preparation. Like I want to be humble. I want to, you know, have some fear. I want to be perfectionistic, et cetera, while I'm prepping. And so that might be with I'm 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 writing the speech. I'm rehearsing the speech. I am practicing basketball. I'm rehearsing the instrument. I'm thinking through the plan. That's the, what preparation feels like versus performance is like all eyes are on you and it's time to dazzle. Is that a fair encapsulation there? Yeah, there's three distinctions that I would make just so we all have clarity and we're all speaking the same language. So for me, preparation is the action or process of making ourselves ready and competent. It involves learning, growing, developing, improving. It's about being ready and and hopefully working on our competence. Performance is much more about execution. It's about the execution of actions that will be evaluated in some way. So I do think there is judgment, there is evaluation involved when we are performing. But at the end of the day, a performance is about execution. And then there's a third distinction that I do think is important to point out, which is practice. So practice to me is actually a combination of both the preparation mind and the performance mind, because a great practice will be an action of working at something repeatedly so that we become more proficient. 
So the argument I make in the book is that you need to become proficient at both the preparation mind and the performance mind. So you need to practice both of these. You mentioned getting ready for a speech. Yes, we need to practice what it's like to be in front of an audience, whether that's our family or our dog or our friends. Like, Let's actually practice that. Dog's probably a little harder to be judged because they're probably just going to bark at you and run out. But try to find ways to practice your performance so you can feel what it's like to be evaluated and to be judged. And then there's also that time where you're away on your own, working at your, on your material, really making sure you're perfecting your craft and you're taking care of everything you need to take care of so that you're learning, you're growing, you're developing. And so we need both the execution and the learning and growing if we want to be effective. Okay. Well, so then could we say a, a few more words about each of the the nine shifts? Uh, not, not the nine, but nine. <laughs> <laughs> and and so we, we talked about humble versus arrogant in terms of humble. Hey, we're learning, we're growing, we're curious and during preparation. Then we're arrogant. Like hey, confidently, this is the, the point of view that I've settled on and, and that could be compelling. So, so lay it on us, uh, some of the others here. Sure. And, and before we move on from arrogant, I know arrogant triggers people and it, it gets them up in a roar often. And there's a reason we used arrogant instead of confident. And it's because we believe that it takes confidence to be humble. If you're truly humble, it actually is an act of confidence. It's a belief in yourself that you can learn and you can grow. For us, arrogance is this exaggerated sense of your own abilities. And I think anybody who's done great things in this world has to exaggerate what they believe in. And a lot of times our society will say that they can't do what they think that they can mm -hmm. do. So I think there does need to be arrogance. And I also would argue that our society prefers humility. It prefers the person that says, no, I can't do that. Or let me take a step back. And it's often the people that are willing to dare greatly and to go for it and say, you know what? I think I can do this. And it's way safer to just stay humble. It's way safer to stay yeah. humble than to go into this space to say, no, I believe I can do it even if society is saying we can't. So I just, I like to make sure that people understand how I think about arrogance. Because once again, I think we've all seen arrogance run amok and it can really backfire when it does. That's very well said in terms of when there may be naysayers, like, I guess I'm thinking there was a point early on in the podcast was like, wow, this is a lot of work and I need help. Yet I don't have much revenue or budget. What can I do? Surely there must be exceptionally talented English speaking people in developing nations I can hire to help out with this. And, and most people said, that's a really bad idea, Pete. <laughs> like, Hey, Maybe data entry is something they can handle. First of all, I thought that was a little bit, uh, maybe conceited. I thought that was a little bit of an attitude. And secondly, I thought, you know what? I'm looking at English newspapers in other countries have excellent writing. So I think this can be done. And so in a way, I was arrogant in, in that I, I defied the conventional wisdom of the podcast, Facebook groups and such. But it totally worked out. They've been amazing. I love you guys. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's a better spin on arrogant. I, I like that. We talk about curiosity because I think we both really value curiosity. And I love curiosity for preparation and I need to be curious. And it sounds like, okay, I'm curious. Like what is possible out there? And then there needs to be a time to be convicted. And that conviction is often breeded uh, or birthed from your curiosity. So I think the arrogance and performance, if done right, 
will be birthed from humility and preparation. Yeah. So if done right, a lot of these shifts will actually serve the other shift. Because if you're just arrogant all the time, you're going to miss the opportunity. You probably are thinking, I'll just do it all myself. I don't even need mm -hmm. help. Like, I'm, I'm good. But the humility to say, hey, I need help if I want to get this to where I want to get it to, you needed that. And it allows you to be convicted when it's time to execute and pull the trigger on something. Uh, totally. And there's humility in terms of, hey, you know, what I've tried so far hasn't quite worked. Is this even possible? I guess one way I'll learn is by asking some opinions. Another way I'll learn is to see, is it being done anywhere on this earth? Like, does that thing exist? And, and so then in that humility, this is why we like this idea, Brian. Humility does lead to arrogance in terms of I had a period in which I was wide open to learning and exploring and seeing what was what and being willing to be wrong. And then after having accumulated a lot of, of research, I'm like, well, holy crap, this is totally possible. I'm going for it, even if people say I'm nuts. Like we all have these things that are holding us back in some regard and we're very quick to share with others why they shouldn't do something, perhaps because we haven't gone and, and done that thing as well. And so I'm an idea guy and I, I can tell you when you're an idea guy and you share your ideas with others, the first thing they're going to go to most people is why it won't work. And I think it's often their own stuff coming up as to why it won't work. Sometimes it's really good feedback. And I know you care a lot about feedback and trust me, I do. I, I, this will actually dovetail nicely into some of the other shifts, which was your original question. Analysis and experimenting are two preparation mindsets that you're even talking about. Like I ran the analysis. I tried to figure out, all right, what else is out there? I experimented, I tinkered. And when you do the analysis, that's when you can trust your gut. That's when you can, mm -hmm. you can rely on instinct. I almost think of analysis as a mind experience. It is, hey, what am I thinking? How am I thinking it? And then instinct is more of a body experience. And, and so there is a time where we do need to go to the gut instead of the head. And then I think experimenting is, is no different. We need to test. We need to try things. We need to try to discover. You said, I need to see the possibilities. What's out there? I need to experiment so that you can then trust your process and, and have an unquestioning belief and resolve in your process and the systems in which you set it up. And for me, this is always a back and forth. So we don't always just stay in trusting process. We want to evolve. We want to get better. We want to experiment. We want to tinker and, and keep improving. And when the lights are on and you're interviewing me, now's not the time for you to tinker with your process. It's now, now's <laughs> not the time to try to find a new way to do it. it it's about trusting that you're ready, that you're competent and that you can do it. So those are two other shifts that I'm hearing from you as I hear you talk. Yeah, no, that, that's well said. It's not the time to experiment. I remember um, I used to do a fair bit of keynoting on, on college campuses and I don't do much of that anymore, but I remember there was, <laughs> there was a big conference for fraternity and sorority people. And so the idea is if you were a speaker and you were keynoting at that conference, you'd just be exposed to like tons of different schools with and, and groups with budget. And so you might be able to book a dozen or two keynotes off of one speech as a sort of a promotional thing. And then <laughs> I remember someone from the agency said, you know, I didn't think it needed to be said, but I guess it does that this huge keynote that sells all the gigs for a year is not the time to be experimenting with new material. <laughs> it's the time to bring your greatest hits that you know are absolute gold. So people say, wow, that person was great. Let's book him on our campus or let's book him at our fraternity sorority convention. There is a time and a place for, for the experimenting and, and then for delivering the goods. And I think comedians is another great example there because... You studied the comedians. I'll let you take it. What's the story there? Yeah. 
so I was actually, as you were telling that story, I was thinking of Chris Rock and, and what Chris Rock does is he goes and experiments at a small little club in New Jersey and tests over and over and bombs and just tries ridiculous stuff so that when he gets the HBO special, he can trust his process and, and let go. And so I think comedians are great at working on their craft and constantly bombing and experimenting with new material. So I would bring that back to your situation. The other uh, story that I share in the book is my own. So when I was a senior in high school, I was running for vice president of the student body. And I looked over and there were these all these people running. And even the advisor, when I turned in my application, she goes, why are you running? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean why am I running? She's like, you're never going to win, which of course, like fueled me to, to try oh, yeah. to do it. And she didn't know I was the eighth grade president of my middle school. She didn't know I had the experience to, to mm. be in this role. However, the difference between me and eighth grade when I ran as president was I wasn't expected at all. I came in there. I went over my speech over and over and over again. I perfected it. I got feedback. I did all this work. And then I delivered a killer speech. And in eighth grade, you do eighth grade, then you do seventh grade, sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And I, I just like standing ovation type stuff, which like maybe it's when I peaked in life, was eighth grade, <laughs> but it was a moment and still people remember my speech, which is crazy. Oh man, I want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Brian is the bomb. Vote Evanson for president. I may be small, but I have tall ideas. Like I did amazing. And for that senior year, you know, it's four years later, five years later, I didn't prepare at all. Yeah. And I got on that stage and I looked over and I was like, shoot, I don't have this at all. And so I just winged it completely experimented and it was awful. Mm -hmm. It was terrible. And I had no shot. I think similar to the comedian or similar to anyone who has to give a speech and we all have to do some form of speaking in our life, whether it's a wedding or a funeral or, you know, a board meeting or whatever it might be. I really believe that when you prepare and you experiment and you play with all this stuff, that allows you to earn the right to then trust your process and, and let go of it. So Chris Rock is a really good example of somebody who constantly does that. Jerry Seinfeld has an experiment calendar where he marks an X every single day that he creates. And he really just believes that a lot of comedy or writing is constantly experimenting and, and creating. So I think Seinfeld and, and Chris Rock are both good examples. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there in terms of like, it's, it is back and forth. So you had a victory and, and this is, I don't know if I made this up. I've experienced a couple times and I've seen it with others, what, what I called a second time syndrome, which was you do something great the first time. Cause you're kind of worried, you know, you're not quite sure you got it. So you, you put a lot of time and effort, you learn, you grow, you prep, you figure it out. And then you, you, you nail it. You're like, okay, I'm awesome at this. And then the second time you don't do those preparation things because you think, well, Hey, I was great the first time. So naturally it was going to be great the second time. And the second time is actually way worse <laughs> than the first time because you sort of overestimated what's innate versus what's the hard work and prep that needs to happen. So I have suffered from that myself a couple of times as well as others. And, and your student government example really resonates in that way is that we do need to to keep going back and forth here from you know preparation to performance and then back to preparation and then back to performance. 
Yeah. And by the way, I lost. I didn't, I didn't win. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I just assumed. <laughs> <laughs> it did not end well. Uh, my friend Michael Burns won. Good for you, Michael. Mm -hmm. But look, I think this is fear and fearlessness. And we often say, oh, just be fearless. Just go for it. Like, just live fearlessly. And I don't really believe in that. And I think your story is a good example of that. If you don't have a healthy dose of fear and you don't have a concern or any apprehension for the potential consequences or, or losses, you're not going to give it the attention that it deserves. So fear is actually really helpful in preparation. And we all know that it can be crippling when we're in performance. And that's where we need to shift into fearlessness. So for me, fearlessness is a boldness. It's, it's being brave or courageous and not really caring about if I lose. And that is healthy in performance if we've done the work and been fearful in preparation. Well, just to, as we've been chatting through this, I think we've hit the majority of these shifts. We talked about humble to arrogant, perfectionistic to adaptable, analysis to instinct, experiment to trusted process, fear to fearlessness. How about selfish to selfless? Yeah, selfish gets a bad rap. We tell people to stop being selfish. And for me, like we have to take care of ourselves first if we want to pour into anyone else. Like I work with a lot of executives who, you know, they're never taking care of themselves. They're always focused on their people. I work with head coaches of sports teams and they're always focused on what are our players doing? Uh, the executives are often thinking of what do, what does my team need? And they get burned out and they're unhealthy, and then they can't serve and be selfless. And so for me, we really need to be selfish in preparation, which is a concern primarily with our own interest, interest benefits, and welfare. And if we do that, if we take care of ourselves, then we can serve other people. But a lot of people, and I even think about like, I know a lot of women who have left their career and their whole lives is to serve their kids. And, and look, I've got two small kids at home. Being a full-time mom, it's tough. And I think anyone who questioned that during the pandemic is now learning how hard mm. that job is. Like, it is really, really difficult. And a lot of the women that I know, I often have these conversations with them about, hey, what are you doing for yourself? Because they're living so much for their kids and they don't always take care of themselves and then it can backfire. So we can see it in business. We can see it in our personal life. We need to take care of ourselves and then be outward focused and, and think about how we can serve others. Yeah, and I totally buy that in terms of when your needs are being met very well, you have a lot of, of energy, creativity, sort of loving generosity, better ability to like listen and be present as opposed to be distracted by the fact that you're hungry, you're exhausted or uh, need to be doing all kinds of things or super behind on. <laughs> like you're totally better equipped to be selfless and, and to help others when you've, you've invested there. Pete, you even sent along like this document that had all this great information about what makes this conversation great. And one of the elements of the document was like, hey, make sure you're good before we hit the record button. So I've got this, people aren't going to be able to see it, but I've got this big jug of water mm -hmm. to make sure I'm hydrated. I went to the bathroom before I got on here a few minutes early, even though we had some tech issues. Like I wanted to make sure that I was taking care of myself. I've got two small kids at home. I told my wife, hey, I'm recording a podcast. I locked the door to make sure they don't barge yeah. in here <laughs> and interrupt it, right? Like there are things we have to take care of. And I'll tell you as a parent, I've had those experiences. My wife turned to me at one point when we had our second kid and said, Brian, are you okay? And I was like, man, I'm tired. And she's like, yeah, when was the last time you did something for yourself? Like what an awesome wife, first of all. Yeah. And second of all, she was right. And I needed to start focusing on what I was doing to take care of me so that I can be there for them. Yeah. 
It's perfect. Well, so then, so theoretically, that's cool. Yeah, we got nine or more shifts and, and a very different vibe when you are preparing versus when you're performing. So how does one just like make that shift on command? It's like, oh, I'm now going to be selfish. Oh, now I'm going to be selfless. Oh, and now I'm in analysis mode. Oh, now I'm in instinct mode. How do you pull that off? Yeah, it's hard. It takes work. I think everything worth doing typically takes work. And so in the book, I've got a bunch of exercises. If you're an exercise type person, I have a workbook. You know, I live in the how with my clients. Like, all right, how do we actually put these into place? But I'll just go to that selfish and selfless one. First, I had to be aware of it. I had to notice it. And then from the notice and the awareness, I had to be intentional with what I was doing and how I was setting up my days and how I was showing up for myself. And so I think it starts with awareness. Then there are processes that you can integrate into your day. Or I even talk about winning the week instead of winning the day. I think a lot of people talk about winning the morning and what are you doing every day to be successful? And I don't know about you, but my days can change and I need to be adaptable. And so I often think about winning the week and and what that looks like for myself and where are these shifts playing for me throughout the week. But there's a ton of exercises that you can get into. And you know, I'm happy, like for me, self-talk is a big one. How am I talking to myself? Let's talk about arrogance. Third person self-talk has been studied and researched as in like literally saying, hey, Brian, you're good. You've got this. You know how to handle this situation is a really good example for arrogance. Uh, Visualization is really good. We didn't talk about future and present, but visualization is a how-to for future focus. Breathing and meditation is great for being in the present. There's all these exercises that I talk about in the book that are how-tos. Those are three. I'm happy to go into more of them, but I think a lot of it, it takes work. So one of the other shifts is work and play. Like You need to put in the work and preparation if you want to earn the right to play and to play with joy. But yeah, there, there's a lot in there. I, I've lived in the how world for a long time and, and there is exercises that you can practice, but it, it always starts with, hey, where do I need to work on? So if someone's listening to this, I would say pick three. Pick three of these shifts that you think are essential for you and then go to work on them and start bringing intention to them and and then you can shift them and you can change them. Well, maybe let's hit visualization real quick. Well, I I think in in, in many ways, just knowing, hey, there's a difference between preparation and performance. This is more of the prep vibe. This is more of the performance vibe. And so I'm going to now deliberately choose to move away from analysis and adapt some instinct. So I, I think that's huge just right there, like conscientiously deciding, hey, this is how I'm looking to be right now. So that'll take you far right away. So then let's talk about, so we got the visualization, the mindfulness, the self-talk. How do we do visualization well? I have a feeling uh, working with so many athletes, you might have some pro tips that uh, we need laid on us. I'll just share what I do. I warm them up by doing a lemon exercise to just show them the mind-body connection. So we go through a whole experience where they have to visualize a lemon and how it smells, what it tastes like, what it looks like, and trying to activate the senses. So great visualization often involves activating the senses because our mind doesn't really know the difference between whether we're imagining it and we're visualizing it or if we're actually experiencing it. So it's one of the powers that does exist with visualization. And as you mentioned, athletes, Olympians are really big on visualization because for many of them, 
it's very hard to simulate what it's going to be like from an environment standpoint. Let's just use the Olympics as an example. They train four years for this event that lasts for some of them. It could be one event mm-hmm. and that that's going to determine how successful they are. So they have to put themselves in that situation as often as possible. The blue angels who fly fighter jets, 350 to 700 miles an hour and are within feet of each other doing flips and turns and all kinds of wild stuff. They use visualization because they know they have limited amount of time actually practicing in the plane because of expenses and because of a lot of other reasons, weather, et cetera, et cetera. So, First of all, I just try to acknowledge and get them to understand the power of the mind-body connection. Uh Second, how I do it with my athletes that I work with is I'll have them tell me an experience that was a great experience. So let's use a basketball player as an example. So they'll explain to me the experience. What was it like before the game? What was it like in warm-ups? What are they feeling? Once again, we're going to try to activate those senses. And then we'll go into the game and actually record an audio clip and with the power of phones now, like it's really easy to record and send an audio. We're even recording this. I can use my podcast equipment, but you don't need that. You can do it on your phone. So I'll I'll type it up for them. Uh, I'll basically try to capture their emotions and their feelings and their senses. And then we'll try to paint the picture of what a great performance looks like. And then we'll record it. And, And mine typically run about five, seven minutes And they can listen to that before a performance and they can close their eyes and see themselves performing and use that future focus to visualize how they're going to perform. So we get a real good description of of a great performance memory. And then you're trying to use the senses to make it all the more powerful and come alive there? That's correct. All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? It's interesting because when I was thinking about this, I was really thinking about curiosity and I do just value curiosity tremendously. So I love, I have no secret talent. I'm only passionately curious from Einstein. I just think that is when in doubt, I try to go into my curious mind and it often serves me. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Yeah, I mentioned that humility study earlier, but I'll give you something else around uh, self-determination theory, which is what makes people motivated, what allows people to thrive, especially in organizations. And self-determination theory typically looks at that people are most satisfied when they're competent, when they have relatedness, and when they have autonomy. So competence, I think people have a good sense of what that means. It's you know how to do your job, like you're a competent podcaster. Okay, cool. Now relatedness, are you building relationships? Are you part of something bigger than yourself? I think all of us as human beings crave to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And then there's autonomy. And just do I have the freedom to go toward the things that I want to? And so that's something that has been really helpful for my clients and helpful for myself as well. And how about a favorite book? So for fiction, I always say I love Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Uh, I just find it to be a great read and and something that really stuck with me as far as what leads to successful teams and, and businesses. And I think your audience may be familiar with that book. And there's a book called The Master Plan by a guy named Chris Wilson. That book is fascinating. It's about a guy who was arrested for murder and uh, committed the crime and was in jail, life sentence, and got out little spoiler alert, but it's all about his journey. And I think it's really valuable to hear his perspective and how he got to where he's at. And I just couldn't put it down. Range by David Epstein, I think is an awesome book. And then I go to like, what is a biography type book that I love? And I love Open by Andre Agassi. So they're different types of books and I like them all for different reasons. 
And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? There's an app called Pocket, which I love. I send out a newsletter. So whenever I read a great article or watch a great video or, or get a piece of content online that I really like, I throw it in a pocket and it saves the content for me. And there's sometimes where I'll see a headline for an article and I'll be really intrigued or curious, but I won't be able to read it right away. So I'll throw that in a pocket. So I was actually telling a client about it today. So that's a tool that, that I use often. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Twitter and LinkedIn are probably the places I, I play most. So it's at Brian Levinson at, at both of those places. And then my website for my company is called strongskills.co. You can learn more about the book, my podcast, the newsletter, and the business that I'm involved with and I founded. And so strongskills.co, it's .co, not .com. I always joke that the .com was, was too expensive. Mm-hmm. It wasn't worth paying for. So we went with .co. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? You know, I think about that idea of curiosity and conviction, and I think we all need to stay curious so that we earn the right to be convicted. And I think about the world where we are right now, and we're in this pandemic, it's hard to be convicted. It feels like things change every day. And so if we can continue to be curious, especially as it relates to what's going on socially in our society today as well, like let's just stay curious and then be convicted. And I find that that usually works out for me. And I find when I usually am convicted before my curiosity, that's where I tend to regret some of the things that I say. So I'll just leave people with the power of curiosity so that they can step into their own convictions. All right. Brian, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much luck in all of your preparations and performances. Thanks for having me, Pete. I think this is a mindset shift that Brian provides here that is going to stick with me for life. We'll see. We'll see. Well, time will tell. But I mean, it's just so excellent in terms of if you're feeling some frustrations, I think sometimes it's because you got a mismatch between preparation mode and performance mode. Like I found I am in performance mode a lot. And sometimes I need to conscientiously shift to preparation mode and say, hey, you know what? We don't have the answers yet. We don't know what we're doing. We're going to have to iterate several times and do something that looks lame, weird, bad, disappointing, embarrassing, not fit for public consumption. And that's just what's going to have to happen a few times before we get to that performance zone. And so it's time to be humble. It's time to be curious and do that work as you're iterating and making ugly stuff and going through version 9, 10, 11, 12 to say until you land on, oh yeah, now it's ready for prime time. And I found that I and collaborators, when we're too early wanting to perform before we've done the preparation, it's like, "Ah, I want it to be done now. It's like, yes, yes, indeed we all would, but we're actually creating, innovating something new that's never existed in the world. And it's going to take a little while before we get to there. So I found that can just drain oodles of frustration from me when I just go, oh, hey, we're in preparation mode. Okay, so so put aside some of those assets that are grand in performance and rock and roll over in the nine preparation mindset zones. So great stuff from Brian. Hope you dug that and it has similar effects for you. If you want to check out the show note, the transcript, the links to I'll be referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP652. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.